This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Take the baseline out. Uh-huh. 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 Let it bump, though. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Hardwood Knock Podcast. I am Dan Favalli, coming at you once again without my co-host, Andrew D. Bailey. But I am ever excited to be joined by Caitlin Cooper from Indie Cornrows. She is a fantastic writer about the Pacers. You definitely need to read her stuff. I'll be plugging her DeMantis Sabonis piece, probably all podcast. Also, be sure to follow her on Twitter at C2 underscore Cooper. That's at C2 underscore Cooper. Before we really dive into Indiana, I just want to remind, implore, beg, plead everyone to continue rating, reviewing, and subscribing to us on iTunes. That is still the best way to let us know that you're listening and whether or not you love or hate us. We can also be found wherever else you consume your podcasts, including Spotify, all that good stuff. But please head over to iTunes and continue rating and subscribing to us. Caitlin, thank you for joining me this morning. How are you doing? I'm doing well, doing good. Happy to be joining. Um, it's been for the Pacers. Uh, the past two games have been. I, I don't. The, the Philadelphia 76ers game was in a. I don't want to say an emotional roller coaster since I'm not really attached to the team, but that was just something to watch with the back and forth, and then to come so close against the Rockets. It just. It seems like they're kind of wrapping up uh, a pretty exhaustive two game stretch. Right. I think last night it just seemed like a lot of their offensive momentum was so much tied to whether Philly was turning the ball over, which that was kind of the case last year in their three games, too. But they, I just think they have some offensive issues they're going to have to figure out in the long term here. Um, and that's kind of where I'll start, because I'd messaged you about this before we actually po- before we actually started podcasting at this second. I think nationally, the, the Pacers get a lot of criticism for their shot selection. Too many mid-rangers, not enough threes. They are hitting those mid-rangers at a high clip relative to the rest of the league. Do you think that's a fair criticism, though, to say, look at this team. You know, they're not necessarily the Pelicans where they don't have the shooters. They have a lot of guys who shoot the ball well from beyond the arc. Should they be taking more threes or is it just a, hey, shut up. They get in transition. They get to the line. uh, They get to the rim. They don't necessarily need to up their three-point volume. No, I mean, I I completely think it's fair. I think heading into this season, I wasn't really expecting them to continue to be bucking this many trends after they went out and got Doug McDermott and Tyreek Evans. And Darren Darren Collison's shooting percentage through the middle three games dropped off at about the same time as Victor's did whenever he started the trapping started amping up. But I mean, a lot of it, too, is you have to hope that they play a team in the playoffs that's going to be turning the ball over a lot, which I mean, Philly 
is one of those teams that does that, but not all the teams at the top of the East are going to be like that. And their three-point attempts per 100, they're ranked 27th. Their free throw rate's 23rd. Pace is 30th. Their free throw percentage was 28th, too. I mean, they started taking a few more free throws the last several games, but, I mean, how much does that matter if they're missing them at the rate that they are? So there's a lot of pressure on them to be forcing turnovers and getting out in transition, and I don't know how sustainable that necessarily is in a playoff series. I mean, at a certain point in time, you hit a top gear with effort where you're going to hit a wall where you're going to be able to need to be able to rely on your half court offense. So is there anyone you sort of look at on this team and just say they just need to be taking more? Th- I, it, again, if it applies to the whole team, but is there anyone on the roster you look at and say they just need to be taking more three pointers in general? Well, I mean, I, I think you would say that just like last night, Darren didn't get any threes. His three-point percentage has kind of fallen off a cliff here early in the season, but I like to hope that that's just a blip on the radar. But, I mean, Doug McDermott, too. I tweeted last night during the game that that was the fourth game this season where he's only attempted one three. And, I mean, that's what you're paying him to do. So they got to find a way to be getting him running off screens. I mean, he doesn't even necessarily have to be the one attempting the shot, but I think they need to be getting him moving because uh, elsewise, like, his defense hasn't been good enough to really – outweigh what you're not getting from him as a shooter if you're not generating looks for him I mean I that's where I look Darren Collison's three-point drop-off has been a weird just I I've just it's just been weird he went from basically leading the NBA in three-point percentage last year to now he's hitting like 25 27 percent of his wide open threes on the season and I just don't is there are you seeing anything from defenses on him or is this just like He's he's sort of just crap in the bed right now and missing looks that he would normally hit. And he's not even taking many threes to begin with. It just seems very bizarre. Right, exactly. I mean, yeah, it's 28.6% overall. And then I broke down, I looked at those numbers this morning, and yeah, you're right, he's 3 of 11 on the wide open ones. I mean, that's six plus feet of space. So I, I like to hope that eventually those are just going to start falling for him again because each of the last three seasons, he's been up over 40, so... I mean, I, I personally would like to see him spotting up more in general and being less off ball, but that's a whole nother discussion. Um, someone who has not been underachieving, though, is Victor Oladipo, for sure. His numbers are just, I don't think anyone, I, I won't say anyone, but it was definitely a minority of people who might have thought that he wouldn't have been able to follow up a season in which he very clearly qualified as a top 20, top 25 player. But his numbers are just, they're so similar to what he was doing um, last year on the offensive end. He's once again, um, and maybe this sort of trails off like it did, I believe, last season, but he's he was hitting um, to start the year a ton of his pull-up twos, and that number has even kind of fallen now, but they account for so many of his shots, and it just looks like a lot of his attempts just remain so difficult, and yet for him to kind of still put up these numbers and, and to look at his efficiency and to see that it hasn't plunged off a cliff um, himself, it's this is really a guy who has put the Pacers on the map in the sense that the hardest thing to do or the most important thing to do when you want to be noticed as a fringe conference contender or even just an Eastern Conference outright contender is have that top 20, top 25 guy. And I I think if it wasn't clear last year, and I do think it was, but now you just, you have that in place and you can count on him to just be that guy, not just night in and night out for a year, but year in and year out. Right. I mean, you mentioned that about the long twos, and I mean, I I think everybody would like to see him kind of modernize his shot distribution a little bit, even though he's draining those at such an efficient rate for the most part this season. But I think one thing that I noticed, even just his overall trajectory and his evolution early just in the home opener, is 
the Grizzlies were icing him on a screen and uh, an evolution for Miles, too. He came out. Miles was going to set a side screen, noticed that they're icing him, flipped it to a step up, and Victor went around it and snaked it. And you'll see a lot more this season that he's doing a really good job at creating space for himself in those situations where it's not necessarily just a quick pull-up, too. He's also dragging that center out laterally, using some really fancy footwork, sometimes to even step back behind three. And I think that's the area that I see, like, that's a wow moment for me, for him. Like, it's not even just completely about his speed. He's also adding more skill to his speed as well, so. And there's kind of a, and you would know this way more than I would, there's there's a element of interchangeability to him, right? Like, I don't think that someone who is maybe so comfortable working off the dribble, I don't know if you can, they're, they're not always going to be able just to shift into kind of these off-ball roles. Like, you can you want him to be a backdoor cutter or you want him, he's someone you want spotting up, especially relative to some of the people on this roster. If Darren Collison's not going to give you um, a quality percentage from beyond the arc. And and that's sort of an underappreciated thing to me that he does anyway. And it goes overlooked with a lot of superstars is that when they are ball dominant, because maybe the roster calls for it, or that's where they're most at home. It's not necessarily easy just to sort of shimmy to at times this, accessory type role and he seems to really kind of do that as well as any of the higher scoring guards in the league right I mean I I would almost like I think in the playoffs later on you'll see because he still hasn't shown a lot for me I mean you haven't seen a lot of teams hedging or showing out against him and the few instances that there have been he's still kind of having problems with turnovers and some of that lends itself with Miles Turner just because Miles isn't quite there at naturally slipping into space to the same degree that Sabonis is, but he's still kind of throwing some of those meek, mild passes to his usual release valves. And going to what you said, I think that that's something they could unlock potentially with Tyreek in a playoff situation where you're, you're using Oladipo's speed on the weak side and kind of letting Tyreek manipulate the pick and roll and just how lethal that that could be with the nail defender having to, you know, choose between hedging over to, cover Tyreek or being able to stick with Oladipo and I mean you're right he can go back and forth between both spots and that's definitely a luxury for the Pacers I was looking at Oladipo's crunch time shooting slash this season um, oh it's insane yeah it's 61.1 slash 58.3 slash 87.5 and with the just the attention he commands in the half court particularly at that point during the game Obviously, those numbers aren't sustainable, but this even sort of dates back to last season where he kind of just seems near automatic in the biggest moments. And maybe, you know, that's not very mathematical of me, but it just you get that feeling when he ha- he's one of those guys that when you think that they're going to take the last shot or they're going to take a big shot, you come close to assuming that it's going to go in. Right, absolutely. I mean, and and what's funny is in that Boston game on Saturday, he really kind of struggled with his shot up until you knew that he was going to be there when you needed him. I mean, at the end of that game, you kind of feel the same way about Kyrie. So I really wasn't surprised when either one was making big shots down the stretch in that game. Uh, I mean, and he's kind of smart about he gets to the free throw line in crunch time, too, which I think is another under just an underrated aspect of of the game that people overlook. Too many players just or offenses in general get bogged down and into these face-ups and they're, they're not really willing to attack the basket as much. And he, it's, it's a function of the Pacers offense because that's what they want him to do, but it's so easier. It's so common for a team and a player to deviate from their typical play style in those moments. And he's just not one of those guys that necessarily does that. He's hit tough shots. Don't get me wrong. And there are times where it looks like he's settling, but he's going to take those anyway, but to get to the free throw line, 
uh, is a virtue in crunch time, and he's just someone that does that. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you this before we actually dove into specific players, but have there been any surprises or disappointments to this team uh, in the early going of the season that have stood out to you? I mean, I think a lot of it goes back to what I said about the mid-range stuff. I think most of us that cover the team pretty regularly weren't necessarily expecting them to still be leaning on that model. Like last year, I think it made more sense because they hadn't added three-point shooters back. And maybe some of this goes to the fact that, you know, they have players that aren't hitting shots at the same rate. But that and just the overall, just the half-court offense has just been kind of sticky. And I think they're going to need to sort out what's what's the impetus for that. I have a few suspicions, but I think we might touch on them here. And... Yeah later on were there any like signs that made you think that maybe they would deviate more from the mid-range that did Nate McMillan say anything over the offseason that made you think that they would kind of change their shot profile a little bit well simply I think it goes back to the end of the last season when they talked in the playoffs of well we need we really want to surround Oladipo with more shooters and they made it an emphasis that they wanted to find you know Tyreek who could both rise up above a pick and attack the basket and that they wanted to go after I mean Doug McDermott was their first signing in free agency so I mean, I, I I just didn't expect that they would still be that their shot profile would still be continuing at, at the extremeness that it is. The fact that they're still I mean, about a week ago, they haven't shot the three that well in the last couple games. But about a week ago, they were number one in the NBA in three point shooting. They were shooting above 40, which isn't sustainable. But they at the same time, they were 28th and and attempts per 100. Like I just I just I don't know. And in today's NBA, when it's when it's skyrocketing scoring, I just don't know how you're really going to keep up with the type of overall style they're doing. Even if, if they could be a good regular season team, but it matters what you're going to be in a playoff situation. And I'm not sure if that's – I just think there's going to need to be some adjustments made. But Yeah, I mean, that's just a way to, I guess, make up the variance. Because if you're going to – it sounds small, but if you're going to make, let's say – three three pointers fewer than your opponent per 100 possessions that's sort of just giving up nine points uh right from the jump essentially and you know and last year they you'd think that they could make some of that up with free throws and in the last several games they have been getting to the line more but it's just bizarre how the entire team is kind of struggling with free throw percentage right now i mean i didn't check the number as of updated this morning but as of yesterday they are 28th in free throw percentage as a team because they're just it's almost like it's a team-wide psych out to an extent here early on. I don't, I don't know what's leading to that, but yeah, I actually had no idea that they. I thought they were getting to the line more until you had said something, and maybe it's because I was watching uh, some parts of the more recent games, and I didn't realize how poorly they were shooting it from the foul line. They are still twenty eighth per NBA dot com at a cool seventy point four percent. Uh, yeah from the charity stripe and, and when you look at their personnel it's not like they have somebody that you think oh that that's dragging it down it's just kind of a a team-wide thing where you you go they go to the line you kind of expect they're they're gonna split it so I probably wasn't reading enough into their signings and it it kind of seems stupid because Tyreek Evans and Doug McDermott as you pointed out if you're gonna sign them it sort of makes you think that they would want to attempt more threes or open up the offense a little bit I guess because I remember a quote from McMillan talking about the Pacers potentially just playing bigger for longer stretches that maybe that's why I was assuming it wouldn't change. I've been more caught off guard by the way they're defending kind of overall, which is again, stupid because I think they were fifth in defensive rating after the all-star break last year, but they're seventh now. And I don't necessarily know who you look at on this team and outside of Oladipo and then Thaddeus Young and say like this team is really just built to, to defend in an all 
different types of situations. And does that mean I'm underselling Miles Turner, Corey Joseph, some of these other guys, or does the makeup of the roster not really hint at, you know, a top seven, a a top five, a top 10 defense? I think that this is going to sound really cliche, but they just play really hard on that end of the floor. And that's kind of been a hallmark of the Pacers, especially with assistant coach Dan Burke, I think kind of demands that of people. And Corey Joseph is a very good defender. I mean, he had a lot of good moments last year where they lean on him at the end of games. That's kind of how he makes up some of the minutes because a lot of times Nate McMillan will go with Corey at the end of games rather than Darren Collison, which that switch got made a little bit late against Boston on Saturday where they, Darren Collison kind of lost track of Kyrie a couple times, but um, yeah, I mean, they don't switch a lot. They kind of avoid that purposely. They, they drill into the team system that they're not going to switch, that they're going to fight over screens. And, and I think one, one instance that I would point to against Portland, they didn't win that game, but going into it, I was like, I really want to see where they're going to have miles drop at against Damian Lillard when they get into that pick and roll action. And they had miles coming out higher, which I'm not going to say they stopped Damian Lillard, but he didn't have a great game to the extent that he's had in some of the other ones. And you watch back behind miles and miles kind of can get lost on certain occasions. Rollers can kind of get loose from him because he doesn't always drop at the right depth and then they'll get behind him. But beyond that, you watch what Thaddeus young does as a tagger and he's just, really good at that and that gets underrated at how good he can be from going tagging into the roller getting back out to the corner and I, I think that's actually a big that and along with Corey up at the point being able to stay skinny up around screens and his rear view pursuit to get shooters to take those mid-rangers is actually pretty important that's kind of an underrated aspect and then just what everything Oladipo does as a roamer um and I guess kind of two questions that dovetail with that is am I just tuning into parts of games that uh, anomaly times or is Victor Oladipo versus bigger wings on defense sort of a thing it's 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 one I get I guess strategy to put him on let's say a Robert Covington because uh he's I don't want to call Covington a stationary player but he's going to hit a lot of his looks off spot ups and that might allow Victor Oladipo to roam more but if you're going to see him as I have this season match up with a Tatum or, or Jimmy Butler we're talking about a guy at 6'4 and it looks like he's holding his own in a lot of these situations and you use the word underappreciated or underrated. And I think that's exactly what this is. People forget this is an all NBA defender. And I'm just, I don't remember last season kind of seeing that, uh, those types of matchups as often as I remember now seeing them this year. Right. I think overall, they'll still probably lean on like what you said, Robert Covington's a really good example, because a lot of times I think their strategy going into games is to put Oladipo on the weaker. I mean, I don't want to degrade Robert Covington here but as you said he's not going to do he's not going to create a lot off the dribble so that allows Oladipo to kind of roam off and he still has he has such good closing speed getting back to shooters and being able to contest shots but yeah you did see him some possessions on Jason Tatum and there there actually were a couple instances where that strategy burned him a little bit where he didn't get quite back to Tatum in enough time but yeah I mean yeah you saw him in Minnesota guarding Jimmy Butler some you saw him guarding bigger Jabari Parker some and he actually had he actually had his numbers defensively against Zach Levine in Chicago are, were pretty solid too, just individual matchup wise. And you know, that that's a size mismatch as well. So. And I mean, I, I know Jabari Parker isn't the most athletic or the fastest guy in, in the world, but he's six, eight, six, nine, and you're giving up five inches there. And to see Oladipo just be on him in the post, it's, I, I, it's just impressive to me. And I, I thought I was oversimplifying that, but I'm glad that it seems like to you that I was not. 
Well, and and actually last night, one of the most moments that stood out for me, Oladipo's defensive-wise, is guarding J.J. Redick. They didn't have him do that a lot last year because, like you said, they'd use him on Robert Covington. But J.J. was going to run off a screen from uh, – acted like he was going to run off a cross screen from Sarich, quick change directions, and ran up through a pin down from Ben Simmons. And last year – you saw in the playoffs that Oladipo would kind of lose track of Kyle Korver fighting through those mazes of picks because he has a tendency to roam off or to, to cheat those because his speed allows him to beat people to the spot. And last night he trailed him all the way through it and then deflected a pass. And I think you're seeing his his lock and trail defense has shown some growth too. I mean, he's just kind of a menace on both ends of the floor. I, I mean, I shouldn't have said kind of. He is. <laughs> Uh, another menace for them is definitely Thaddeus Young. Uh, proved it, especially at times during the playoff series with Cleveland last year who's more underrated uh in terms of importance to this team him just because holy defense or Boyan Bogdanovich because just holy shooting just if you look at his three-point clip since coming to Indiana uh, the past two seasons you know just you know we're only partially through this one over 41 percent on over 430 attempts uh is it Thaddeus Young just as you were because he so because defense tends to be the more underrated part of the game in general or do you think there's a case to be made for Bogdanovich there I mean I would lean Thad just because I think that not everyone always recognizes kind of the inconspicuous stabilizing factors that he provides I mean even sometimes when the when the offense gets gummed up he's so good at manufacturing angles to take those little left-handed kind of off-balance weird floaters that he takes and that that can unglue stuff. And then at the other end, he is the glue. Like, I mean, like I said about Portland, you, you don't always notice what somebody's doing as a tagger when you're watching a game in real time. Like, at least for me, that's something that I have to kind of go back and watch and pause and look because, I mean, you could definitely see a difference in that game between what Tyreek Evans was doing when he was in the deep corner to tag and what Thad was doing versus what Bogdanovich was doing. And I, I mean, that, that was really important last year in the playoffs with how they could kind of flip Thad back and forth between LeBron and Kevin Love. And I mean, he basically put the clamps on Kevin Love in that seven game series. That series would have been a lot different if they would have had to have Miles Turner out guarding in space with Kevin Love from three instead of kind of being able to sag off of Jeff Green or J.R. Smith or whichever shooter wasn't being used as much as a screener. He kind of has that uh, I, like Clay Thompson mentality where he seems like he's one of the few guys in the league who generally doesn't care about what he's doing. On the offensive end, he's finishing right. fewer plays since coming to Indiana, and yet he still just works his ass off on the defensive end. Right. I mean, I think he said at one point last year that the Pacers run exactly two play calls for him, and the rest of the time, if he gets shots on offense, it's just from, like what I said, he's manufacturing angles or he's crashing the glass or he's, you know. They've used him a little bit more, I think, in post-up situations this year just to exploit mismatches, which he's been pretty decent at. So That's just, you, you're not able to say that a lot of guys, and we're talking about essentially then two contract years because we weren't sure if he was going to pick up his player option um, last season. And then now this year he's going to be a free agent over the summer. And yet to not see that mentality shift or to really uh, see him take more shots where I think his usage rate last time I look at actually dropped from last season. That I, I don't know. That feels like an underappreciated thing too. Right. And some of that might also has to might also be because they've used Bogdanovich and Doug McDermott together a little bit so Thad isn't playing as much at, I mean I guess that doesn't necessarily impact his usage but his minutes as far as all the different people they've rotated in at four you've seen a little bit of a cut there but yeah I mean he's just Clay's a good comp for 
him being a low maintenance player that's just willing to do what the team needs him to do. Um, I don't really mean to backtrack a little bit. I sh- probably should have pestered you about this when we were talking about their offense, but Tyreek Evans, um, is has he been sort of that offensive safety valve that he's supposed to be? Are they underutilizing him in that aspect? I always just wondered, Memphis, his situation in Memphis was so weird last year because they were so bad and they were really just milking him um, at points before he became a shutdown candidate. And yet he's still just shooting a ridiculous number on pull-up jumpers. Uh, 45.5% on pull-up threes on one attempt per game, which isn't nothing, and a 56.1 effective field goal percentage overall. Has he been exactly what this offense needs but probably like do they need should they be playing him more or leaning on him more there's a lot to unpack there (laughs) um yeah I think some of it's been really inconsistent with him to start the season and it's kind of hard to put your finger on as to why like when they went up to Minnesota he was I mean I don't want to be rude but he was basically a no-show like it was just it he might I mean he basically might not have even been there and then the the whole practice situation where he's late to practice and and how yeah, they issued, how they issued that PR statement was was kind of odd in my book I I don't know what all is going on there but I mean headed into the season and I I still think I'm of this opinion I would have started him with Victor and used kind of a Houston style rotation because I think ultimately that's going to be the end game in the playoffs. I think you're going to need to be playing those two minutes together unless Victor shows some growth against traps. I think you're going to need Tyreek out there, whether he's the one initiating the offense and you're using Victor's speed on the weak side or Victor's initiating the offense and Tyreek's being a release valve to score in isolation or in whatever ways. I think they're going to need a secondary scorer because Darren wasn't necessarily that. I don't think that Corey's necessarily going to be that either, even though his spot-up shooting has been rather absurd to start the season. And that's why it's a little weird. Like, I totally get running Tyreek with the bench. He has great chemistry with Sabonis, but I think you can accomplish that and be maximizing his minutes with Victor as well. And you look at his touches, like some of these numbers are just really interesting to me. His touches last year with Memphis were over seven, were 73.6 per game, which, of course, like the offense is just running through him because of what... Mm what their situation was and what their numbers were. That's cut to 35 and a half for this year, which I mean, that's an insane cutback. And you have to realize too, that he's in a contract year and as are Darren and, and Corey Joseph. So that's another dynamic. And then you look at his play type breakdowns and the order is the same, but the actual frequencies, like he's being used in pick and roll a lot less. He's being used in isolation less and he's spotting up more, which like what you said about, his pull-up threes like that that to me is one of the best things he adds to the team because they don't Victor hits pull-up threes but not in the same way that Tyreek does because Tyreek's hitting them coming off a pick and a lot of times with Victor he's hitting them either in isolation after a retreat dribble or he's hitting him in transition and that gives them another angle but the really thing that stands out as far as using him more in the pick and roll is the Pacers are averaging 1.2 points per possession when Evans feeds a roll man cutter or a spot up shooter when dribbling off a screen like they're getting good production off of his passes which I know he has some tunnel vision problems but that's a lot higher rate than Corey Joseph which is 0.8 and and Collison which is 0.8 as well like he just 
there's a greater breadth of what he can do with a screen versus what Darren and Corey are going to do with a screen. And Darren can be was efficient last year, making basic passes and coming up, spotting up, coming off the screen for a long two or you know whatever it may be. Sometimes he would yo-yo it back from three. But I just think that the breadth of what he can do with a screen and what he can do with Sabonis, he needs to be being used more. Plus the whole contract situation, I think, could be a sticky dynamic as the season goes on if he's not being more regularly involved in the offense. And that might somewhat be a causality dilemma as well, because which is it? Is he having a little bit of tunnel vision because he knows my minutes are reduced, my touches are reduced. So therefore, when I get the ball, I want to go try to score or is Nate McMillan not giving him more opportunity to run the offense in those situations because, well, you're not moving the ball. Like I know that's been a little bit of a point of contention that it. Nate thinks that the offense is taking too long to actually start and get into a play because there's too much dribbling, which I, I can see that point, but I think something's going to have to give with how they're using him at a certain point. Well, you wrote that uh, great piece over the offseason about how they could use Oladipo and Tyreek Evans to sort of play off one another, and I was looking up their numbers while you were just talking, and the Pacers are plus 10.6 points per 100 possessions when they play the two together per cleaning the glass. Uh, the offensive rating is kind of middle of the road. Is there, like, looking at the Pacers roster, what would be the ideal three players that you would want to surround those two with, whether it's, um, you know, you're talking about replicating maybe just the Rockets' all-everything playmaking model, uh, or if you just want to use these two to close games or just to provide yourself an edge in the playoffs, which that two-man combination, as you wrote about in the offseason, and then as you just said now, that could sort of be a sneaky trump card in the in the postseason. That could elevate them to to me, I guess, at least over a team like maybe Philadelphia or maybe even uh, Milwaukee or give them a fighting chance against Boston slash Toronto. But how would you sort of flesh out that two-man combination if you were coaching the team? Well, I I mean, I think you definitely want uh, an off-ball shooter, which depending upon what the matchup is, you pick there probably between Bogdanovich or Collison. I mean, if Corey's numbers hold, Corey's going to give you more defensively if you're going to be up against a three-guard lineup than either one of them are going to give you. But Thad, Thad's a kind of an obvious one because of what he's doing defensively, too. I mean, the Sabonis-Turner lineups are just so strange. I, I would lean Sabonis-Turner if they were doing more with Sabonis and Turner. I mean, I, I remember pointing out in that piece, like, if they just run one of them, off a pick and roll, they they throw the ball behind the pick and roll and do a step up on the other side. Those four players are tailor-made to do that. It's just that a lot of times when Sabonis and Turner are on the floor, last night there was a few exceptions. The offense is just such an afterthought. It's so either-or, and the spacing can be odd. Like last night they were lifting Miles a little bit more, which I appreciate, rather than, you know, Sabonis is on a post-up and Miles doesn't know where to stand, or Miles crashes while Sabonis is posting up, or what what not but I I want to still see more from that tandem but right now I don't have a lot of faith in it until they start being a little bit more experimental with what they're willing to do I mean Nate basically said ahead of the season that you know they're both centers that's not a good combination for us and we're only going to use it in you know spot situations if the opponent's playing bigger and to me that that's basically communicating before the season even starts that eventually they're going to have to pick between them if you're never going to be willing to play them together because you know how much money are you going to invest in one position when neither of them are going to average you know over 30 minutes it's not even possible so yeah and well okay so before i get to that question about that big picture you another piece you published this week cuz i alluded to earlier um 
On Demand to Sabonis over at Indie Cornrows, published this week again. Please go check it out. It was great. He, even before I get into him, if there was an award for the player most likely to drop 25-plus points on fewer than 10 shots without missing a single one, it goes to him, right? I just feel like there's constantly these near-perfect, low-volume nights from him. Right. I mean, he's been he's just been so much fun to watch. That was a really fun piece to write because he's kind of one of those people that you don't necessarily see all that he saw until you go back and watch the possession or see what what he's reading out on the floor. And he's been so patient this season, whether it's with, you know, in dribble handoff situations or whether he's waiting on the post for somebody to double him or, or what he sees. And I you just see a lot of growth with how what he does slipping rolling I mean he's still that's what's so interesting is he's being this efficient and he doesn't spread the floor and he doesn't really play above the rim either so yeah and you broke down you broke down a bunch of plays in that piece but the one where I never first of all your exes and O's knowledge just way exceed mine anyway but one thing even upon re-watching it and re-watching it on my own I never would have caught is you broke down this play against San Antonio where he just did so much in this dribble handoff such uh situation where he's motioning to Thad um gives the ball to Evans set sets a screen and then ends up scoring on the play like that's just the guy who works in the half court right he directs a lot of traffic and if you look at uh, how the Pacers touches are breaking down like over the weekend I'm not sure if the number's still this way but he was averaging the second most touches on the team because so much off the bench they run through him whether it whether the possession's ending in a shot for him or not they're running a lot of, you know, dribble handoffs for him to be a connector. I mean, that that's how I see Sabonis. He connects dots that otherwise might not have been connected on the floor in a way that you don't necessarily get from Miles yet. Like he just doesn't see the floor to that. He doesn't have the same spatial awareness that Sabonis has. Is his ceiling, is Sabonis's ceiling higher than Miles Turner's? That that's still Miles's growth is interesting because I think Sabonis impacts how we see Miles for I mean I just did it I mean because because he has grown you have seen little moments of growth like I mentioned earlier like him being aware to change the angle on his screen into a step up for Victor to be able to snake his dribble like that's not something he would have done a year ago he's also if he gets a switch he's also being more okay, I have a switch. I'm now going to go and post this up. Instead of last year, he would kind of meander in the lane. He wouldn't be quick to get to it. And you're seeing a little bit more diversity in his post moves too. Like those are all things. It's just that his growth isn't necessarily linear. Like he had a really good game against Chicago over the last three quarters of that game, had six blocks, was knocking down shots, spreading the floor. And then like last night, you know, Embiid kind of erases him, kind of makes him non-existent. So I... I still think I believe in Miles continuing to reach that ceiling, but Sabonis kind of complicates matters because you want you want to get for Miles. I mean, not for the Pacers. Sabonis has been obviously a plus for the Pacers, but for Miles' growth, like you want to get Sabonis minutes, so that's cutting into Miles' minutes. And a lot of times in crunch time, they are going to lean on Sabonis just because of what he's able to do as a connector and with the ball in his hand. So Miles isn't getting experience in those types of you know clutch high tension situations all the time because he's watching but in general right now I'm confident to say that Sabonis definitely has the more reliable floor a lot of times Miles's impact is too tied to whether he's hitting those mid-range shots and I looked at his numbers last night Miles indirectly and I mean he's not shooting the three well I think he's shooting like 14 percent on threes but he's also barely taken any he's taking three mid-range shots for every three which Nate kind of indicated prior to the season that 
Nate's commentary on what he wants Miles to do is always kind of interesting because he said at one point last year, he compared Miles to like a laser from mid-range. And then he said something along the lines prior to the start of the season about the three-point line that Miles was kind of a magnet to there. And I don't know if he was referring to threes or referring to him popping because he does obviously pop way more than he ever slips or he rolls. But like... To me, he still needs to be taking more threes, even if he isn't hitting them at a high clip this year, because that's his best strength as a shooting. So you want him to extend and expand that skill. And right now it's a it's a three to one ratio. I think Turner even said something just before the season started about how he's not concerned with upping his three point volume, which was a, just a weird thing to say, because as you mentioned, it also seems like that might just be his best bet to, I don't want to say inflate his numbers, but really make an offensive impact because they're not you know, even forget about the minutes because of Sabonis for the sec uh, for a second. But when you're dealing with Sabonis and Oladipo and and Evans and even Bogdanovich and Corey Joseph, the touches just aren't going to necessarily be there for him to develop into uh, an offensive hub. He's always just going to have to play off of everybody, right? Because yeah, I mean they don't necessarily do a lot necessarily to skate safeguard his touches either. Like he's doing a little bit more ducking in against those switches or posting up. But like last year. If he got a switch and he was on the floor with Sabonis, it was just like, well, the pocket pass is walled off to Miles, and now he's standing on the lane, and Sabonis is on the opposite block, so we'll take another mid-range two. Like, I mean, they could be doing more with Sabonis and Turner in general, but if they're not going to be having Turner taking threes, that really impacts whether they're ever going to be able to play him together because you need to have one of them outside of the paint. And then Miles is the one that's more suited to do that. I mean, I wrote over the summer a piece about them playing together, similar to what I did with Tyreek and Victor and like just running horns flare so that there's a built-in screen so that you can get Miles a shot to safeguard him still getting shots. Like, I mean, those are what teams are going to give up. If you're guarding the pick and roll and Miles is popping, you're going to be more willing to give him an open shot when he's shooting 14% from three than you are going to hedge away from Victor and and not cover the person with the ball going to the rim. So if they're going to be giving him those shots, he's going to need to be able, they need to get him the ball and he needs to knock him down. Otherwise, he's not really spreading the floor because teams aren't necessarily guarding him out there. Um, and I also, defensively, I know the way that a lot of bigs are playing on other teams. It's kind of changed the way we view and value rim protection. But if you're talking about someone who can make like a, just a show stopping block, or I, I always think about, I didn't mean to mention Roy Hibbert on this podcast, but that block way back when on Carmelo Anthony, Miles Turner is just seems like that type of rim protector where he's, I don't want to say he's not afraid to get posterized, but he just makes some plays where it looks like someone's going to throw down a hammer of these hard dunks, but he's just there at the rim and able to uh, get a, to block the shot cleanly and he's that's why his ceiling might be so interesting to me is I could see him being so much better than he is defensively now just because of what we've seen from him as a rim protector and I do think he's never received enough credit for how kind of portable he is on that side of the floor Um, but feel free to definitely tell me if I'm out of my mind. I mean, he's not, he's not super fluid defending in space. He definitely wasn't last year. Like, I think you're seeing, this is why I said, you can see little moments of his growth this year that I think are being somewhat clouded by everything that Sabonis is doing because against Portland, they've been more fluid with how they're using him because against Portland, they used aggressive drops. I've seen a few instances this year where they've had him hedge and he's recovered to shooters with high hands. They've had him use deep drops, which I think he's shown a better understanding of where he needs to be in those situations. I mean, I can remember one specific play in the Cleveland series where they were running Kyle Korver and floppy and 
Miles was guarding J.R. Smith, and he gets he can get so kind of clunky defending in space that he basically set like a friendly fire screen on Victor Oladipo trying to recover. And and I think you're seeing a little bit better there, but he's still. I mean, even against Houston, he was he was kind of losing track of Clint Capella, which has to do with taggers, but also has to do with him knowing where to drop. And sometimes with empty side pick and roll, he d- he doesn't necessarily know where he's supposed to be in dropping situations either. But I mean. You hope that he continues to grow in that because, yeah, his, his shot blocking and his timing is so impeccable that sometimes he can really, when a person gets past him or even when a roller gets past him, he makes up for it because he has such good timing that he can recover and block the person from behind. So, I mean, he had six blocks in that Chicago game, and all of them were pretty much equally impressive. So, You mentioned before about you think this is going to, since Sabonis and Turner are both best suited at center and since the Pacers have essentially acknowledged that as well, it's going to come to a point where they have to pick one. Does the Turner extension, uh, I think it was $72 million was guaranteed of the $80 million that he signed, or it could be worth up to $80 million with um, incentives. Does that hint towards where they're leaning, or is this just a strictly preemptive play? You know, the Mavericks are always out there looking for centers when they have cap space, and Sabonis, while he's extension eligible this summer, you can deal with him on the rookie scale for one more year before you really have to make a decision. Right. I mean, I it, it, I think there's some delaying there. I mean, I, I am very interested. I, I wish that there was a way to know that if they had both been extension eligible at the same time, what would they have done? Would they have still signed Miles to that contract? Because my thinking is probably not that they they probably would have watched both of them through this season and seen, you know, where is the shaking out? And obviously, I mean, they're not, they basically, like I said, Nate says that they're not really going to play them together that much other than as a means to get Sabonis more minutes. And I mean, the Miles extension is interesting because I don't know. I mean, I don't think it's necessarily a bad contract. I think they paid for potential there to a degree that they're going to need to hope that he reaches. I mean, I think it's still going to be tradable because of what we still see is like, because his touches have pretty much stagnated each of the last three seasons, I think a team's always going to look at him and see, well, in a different environment, in a different situation, you know, maybe he reaches closer to his potential here. So I I think the jury's still out on which one of them will be on the roster in two years, but I lean towards thinking, or whenever Sabonis hits restricted free agency, I mean, assuming they don't come to terms on an extension for him, that... I lean towards thinking that it will be an either or that I, I just don't see how you can invest money into two people that are going to share one position that you're not going to be getting 30 minutes a night out of at that, at that degree. And would your guess be then that they don't negotiate as a bonus extension then where maybe they're hoping to just increase his trade value the following year by having him right term contract. Yeah. I would be surprised if they did that unless they could get something that again, they think's friendly and that would be tradable, but he would we'll have see. to, I guess, kind of undervalue himself because right. I think a lot of teams are going to look at, well, he's not playing. If we put him in this 30 minutes per game role, let's think about what he could do. Right. The Turner extension I kind of liked, though, just because, uh, and, and maybe this is flawed thinking, but with Atlanta kind of having cap space and not sure whether John Collins can be a small ball five long term and also just Dallas, um, what are they? how do they view DeAndre Jordan? He's going to be 31 over the summer. With those two teams having cap space, I could have seen – one of them really coming over the top to either one, just poach a restricted free agent, which is really hard to do. Or, or make two. it prickly. Yeah. yeah. So I, I was actually pretty okay with it, but I'm I'm interested to see which one they would pick. I might still pick Turner, but Sabonis has really made me rethink that probably over looking, dating back to the end of last season through the beginning of this one. Right. Um. Just a couple big picture stuff before I let you go. 
this season specifically, looking at what this team needs, do you think they're the Pacers aren't necessarily ones to make these huge moves at the trade deadline, but are there any low key trade targets you would like to see them go after or just a need that you might like to see them address um, on the trade market, particularly since even though I think we could say this might be a top four team in the Eastern Conference, I don't know that they'll be a destination on the buyout market when we look at some of the veterans that might get bought out after February. Oh boy. I, I haven't, I still think there's so much more that we kind of need to see. Like I need to know what is, you know, what's the deal with Darren Collison shooting it? What right. it, why? Cause I mean, I don't even think I necessarily mentioned that with Tyreek, like his something interesting about him is he's still hitting those pull-up threes at such a high rate, but his finishing around the basket in the half court is still so, I mean, he's shooting 37% on those shots right now, which has kind of been a career thing with him the last several years. So why aren't those shots opening up, especially when he's playing with more shooters and kind of seeing how some of that plays out to know what need they really have? Because if both of them kind of normalize, I would think that they would probably feel pretty good about what their versatility is as far as, you know, Corey can provide defense Darren like as far as because I would think that they would need to move like Darren's contract or Corey's contract to kind of you know if they were thinking oh we want to get a more long-term answer at the wing or you know whatever they want to do that they would need to move one of the two of them but I don't know how much of a rush they would be in because I think they also really value the fact that they're going to have a lot of cap space next summer and I also think that they know that they have utility in both of those people if they're playing similar to what they did last year um Maybe like a like a Justin Holiday type trade target then someone on an expiring from a tanking team who might not actually cost them one of their they're they're a team that I think other teams are going to call just because they have a goulash of expiring contracts where they could just they could really right. go all in on a deal if they wanted to but like you kind of said this is the rare roster where they didn't double down necessarily on last year but they didn't kind of they didn't do nothing like their books are right. still so flexible and you're still so intrigued to see hey maybe this team's uh, peak is is higher than they're showing uh, last season and of course right now right yeah I mean they definitely made conservative upgrades and I know that I don't yeah exactly I think that it would have to be for somebody on like an expiring because I don't I don't I just don't see them being like well we're gonna move Corey Joseph that I know that that brought up that got brought up early in the season with Phoenix and my initial thought was I just don't see them doing that because of how much they value him at the end of games. And, and I think that they also value him as an expiring contract, which is going to give them flexibility, whether they end up retaining him next summer or not. I think that they like that they're going to have a, that the world can be their oyster. So, and I guess you can't afford to move them if Collison keeps clanging threes. Right. So. Right. Uh, do you think, I don't want to get into a specific target. We're still so far out from free agency, but do you think Victor Oladipo's, um, continuance, uh, his encore performance from last year really helps them in free agency to the point where they could be, um, a, a surprise player. Maybe doesn't, maybe don't land one of the marquee names, but get a high profile player on a long-term deal because not only do they have the ability to pay, but now you're coming in and you're playing with this just proven battle tested star. Right. And I mean, I mean, I know a lot of teams are going to have cap space next summer, but the Pacers are definitely going to have a lot of cap space next summer, and they're going to be one of the teams that's competitive. So, yeah, I mean, I I would hope that Victor would be a magnet for somebody. I mean, I mean, you're not going to get somebody like Kevin Durant, but, you know, I look at like a Chris Middleton or maybe, you know, depending upon how things shake out with what they're doing with Tyreek and if they like that look, you know, somebody maybe like Kemba that they could play. Ooh. And, that's a good I mean, one. <laughs> I kind of like that dynamic. And I know Victor, 
I found it interesting because last year at the All-Star game when they did media availability, somebody, some one of the media members asked him about Kemba and his eyes kind of lit up a little bit. And he <laughs> talked a lot. He talked a lot about that they had a friendship and some of that going back and how much he respects and likes his game. And I kind of like the dynamic that could play out between the two of them. I mean, I'd have to think about it defensively because obviously, you know, Kemba's not going to give you size. And I still think maybe they need a long-term answer at the wing, even though Bogey's been playing really well I think I mean you kind of saw with Bogdanovich last year in the playoffs that like the load of guarding LeBron kind of wore on his shooting ability outside of that game three explosion which I mean I guess there isn't a LeBron for him to necessarily guard this summer but there are other really good wings too I mean there's Kawhi and and Giannis and Ben Simmons and that load isn't necessarily going to be eased and I don't know if he can do all of that I mean Doug McDermott can hopefully spell him but yeah, I mean, I would kind of look at Kemba. I kind of like that. So, And if they don't go for the star, I guess having Evans' non-bird rights at this number comes in handy, and then maybe you chase, like, two, you know, middle rung or slightly belower wings. Like, there are just kind of those, like, role-playing guys. There's This year, I think there's Danny Green, there's Wilson Chandler, there's Terrence Ross. Like, a few of those guys could be pretty good complementary fits for the Pacers if they're not going to land that big fish and they want to keep Evans. Right. And, and, you know, if Tyreek starts, if, if they start altering a little bit how they're using him and if some of his numbers bounce back, then, you know, maybe you're happy with that selection. You like how the two of them play off. And yeah, maybe you keep doing kind of what their MO is, which to make, you know, conservative upgrades and maintain their flexibility and keep the ball rolling. My final question. Can you talk me out of Elise Johnson? Oh, boy. He, he's really fun to watch, isn't he? Like, some of the league so was mu- just, I. Yeah. <laughs> I mean,. I think my favorite thing, my favorite thing about him is going to sound so random, but when he gets switched on to a smaller player on the perimeter, his feet are so quick, like so just so quick defending switches. And then just some of the plays he was making facilitating offense and transition. I think I remember him throwing like a behind the back pass and transition. Then he goes outside of his rebounding area to get to get rebounds. I mean, he's obviously still really raw, like his shot still needs work. And then he'll take like these five foot, like running hook shots because he doesn't really have the footwork for like veer finishes around the rim yet. But I mean, the Pacers have a lot of people that will make like, you'd want to watch their G league games for sure. Because Edmund Sumner, Aaron holiday, Alizé Johnson, like all those people are expected to be bouncing back and forth quite a bit this season. And I, I like all three of those players. So yeah, his passing was the thing that caught me off guard in summer league. Um, uh, in part because summer league's not really, you know, when you're trying to ensure that you're going to ma- leave an impression on a team and make their roster, your instincts, I don't know if you're, especially in transition, aren't necessarily to pass. And he dropped some of these nice passes in transition. And I don't know if I'm just being hopeful or reading too much into it, but he, is he someone who could then, not this season, but maybe not even next year. But when you're looking at that choice between Sabonis and Turner as an affordable option, does he all of a sudden become important to their front court structure? Yeah, I mean, I think some of that depends on like right now they're using TJ Leaf and kind of spot minutes. And I think kind of trying to explore what what they are necessarily having him. But and the, and those two people are I would kind of like to combine them into one player because they're, they're so really different. TJ has the shot that Alizé needs and. Alizé has the defensive instincts and and some of the passing instincts. I mean, TJ's shown a little bit of growth on like passing out of the post and whatnot. But yeah, I mean, I I like him as a diamond in the rough project for sure. Like I, I don't think I'm not I'm not going to be like completely hyping him, but I'm definitely going to be watching the the Mad Ants games when he's in action to be seeing, you know, how how he's developing. 
Alize, that's something you will learn about me is I butcher pronunciations of names even when I'm looking at the phonetic pronunciation because I am just absolutely terrible. But I appreciate you not talking me out of him. Um, that makes me that makes me uh, pretty excited. Uh, Kaylin, I want to thank you so much for uh, jumping on with me this morning to just take some deeper dives into the Pacers. I learned a ton, so I'm sure our listeners learned a ton. Everyone needs to follow Caitlin on Twitter at C2 underscore Cooper. Uh, she writes great stuff at Indie Cornrows. Uh, she is a great follow as well. Definitely check out that DeMantis Sabonis piece that she just posted um, over there. That was a fantastic read, like uh, everything else that she writes. I uh, just want to continue reminding everyone to subscribing and rating and reviewing to us on iTunes. We appreciate um, all the feedback we get there. If you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at Dan Favale, F-A-V-A-L-E. Or you can follow Andy at Andrew D. Bailey. Hardwood Knox is at Hardwood Knox. Caitlin, I want to thank you once more for, for coming on. I, I really enjoyed it and appreciated the time. Sure, no problem.